Well, friends, uh, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read then in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, reading again at verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. I wonder, have you ever been to a memorable prayer meeting? An unforgettable prayer meeting. I remember being at one such prayer meeting in Helmsdale Free Church back in 2010. This very small and very elderly congregation had just finished their building project And this was one of the first meetings that they were holding in their new church building. And as the different men got up to pray, all of them over the age of 60, there was a passion and there was a yearning in their voices as they called out to the Lord to bless their new building and to bless the new era that they were going into as a congregation. And I've never forgotten it. It was a memorable prayer meeting. In fact, I think what stands out was the, the, the windows began to get condensation because the men were just calling out to the Lord, this small prayer meeting of less than 20 people. Phenomenal. Well, this evening we're going to be continuing our studies in Nehemiah and we're focusing on the memorable prayer meeting that took place following the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. We're looking at it under three headings, the congregation, then the confession, and finally the complaint. First, we have the congregation. Look at verses 1 to 5. Here, Nehemiah focuses on the congregation of the Levites and the people. And we can begin by noting the context at the beginning of verse 1. It was the 24th day of the month. Uh, Back in chapter 8, we found the people assembling on the first day of the seventh month to hear the word of God being read. It's now the 24th day of that same month, and the people have just finished uh, celebrating the festival of booths. We can continue by noting the congregation in verses 1 to 3. Nehemiah tells us that the people of Israel were assembled. Verse 1, they are fasting, they are clothed in sackcloth, and they have earth on their heads. They are assembled in a manner that reflects uh, great sorrow, uh, self-abasement, self-humbling. And Nehemiah goes on to tell us that they separated themselves from all foreigners. Verse 2. Now, that's not a racist or xenophobic act. This is a public expression of their loyalty to the Lord and their desire to be set apart for him. They will be a holy people for a holy God. Nehemiah goes further and tells us that they stood and made a confession. Look again at verse 2. They confessed their sins, but they also confessed the sins that their fathers, their ancestors, had committed. Nehemiah goes further still and tells us that they stood for a quarter of the day reading from the book of the law of God. Verse 3. Back in chapter 8, the people had stood from sunrise until midday, hearing the word being read. And now in chapter 9, they stand for a quarter of the day, about four to six hours, hearing the word being read. They're taking the reading of God's word seriously. They are prioritizing the word. 
And Nehemiah tells us that they made confession and worshipped the Lord for a quarter of the day. Verse 3 again. Uh, there's always a danger. Robert's just touched on it in his fear that a person can be under the reading of God's word. They can be under the preaching of God's word. And yet they may remain unresponsive to that word. They may remain hardened to that word. But on this occasion, the people hear the word being read for four to six hours. And after hearing it being read for four to six hours, they then confess their sin and worship the Lord for another Four to six hours. We can also note the call in verses four and five. Nehemiah draws their attention to a group of Levites in verse four. We have Joshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They're standing on the stairs, an elevated place, and they cry out with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. Nehemiah then draws their attention to a second group of Levites in verse five. Uh, we have Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pithaiah. And they proceed to call on the people to stand up and to bless the Lord their God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And having exhorted the people to bless the Lord, they themselves bless the glorious and exalted name of the Lord. Now, friends, as we consider these verses... We're being shown the importance of the Lord's people congregating together to make much of him. The importance of the Lord's people congregating together to make much of him. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. We find the people of Israel and the Levites assembling to read God's word and to engage in God's worship. And it's a day where, as we'll see in the next few verses, they engage in penitence and praise. And the whole community of God's people, all Israel, gathered together to participate in this event. No one is too young. No one is too old. Everyone's included. And that is so important, friends, for us to remember. The Old and New Testaments are clear in recognizing the personal dimension of faith. But they're also clear in recognizing the corporate dimension of the life of faith. The necessity of the Lord's people gathering around his word and engaging in his worship as a united body of believers. The necessity of the Lord's people coming together for praise and penitence. There is something very concerning. There is something very worrying when a physically fit professing Christian doesn't see the importance of gathering with the Lord's people to make much of him. There is something very concerning, there is something very worrying when a physically fit professing Christian deliberately chooses to be absent from the assembling of the Lord's people. Now that's not me saying it. This is what the word of God says. To put it bluntly, to deliberately absent ourselves from the assembling of the people of God is to go against the teaching of Scripture. And so this evening, let's ask ourselves as individuals and as a congregation, do we see and appreciate the importance of congregating together as the Lord's people? Do we see and appreciate the importance of congregating together as the Lord's people on Sunday mornings, 
We have a Sunday morning service on Sunday evenings. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just on Sunday evenings, but also on Tuesday nights. And if you've got garlic on Thursday nights, do we see and appreciate the importance of gathering, congregating together as the Lord's people? Now, I know, friends, that you might think that I'm beating the same drum on a regular basis. But I am concerned. I am worried. And the elders are concerned. The elders are worried when, when we're, we're missing loved ones, when we're missing friends, when we're missing brothers and sisters in Christ, partners in the gospel from our fellowship, or maybe just seeing them sporadically. Friends, do we see, do we appreciate the importance of congregating together as the Lord's people? But we move from the congregation to the confession. Look at verses 6 down to 31. Nehemiah now focuses on the confession of the Levites and the people. As the Levites lead the people in praise and penitence, they begin by speaking about the Lord's work of creation. Look at verse 6. They begin by saying that the Lord alone is God. They continue by saying that he created all things. He created the host of heaven. He created the earth and all that is in it. He created the seas and all that is in them. And they go on and say that he sustains or preserves or upholds all that he has created. And they conclude by saying that the host of heaven worships him. He is the God of creation. The Levites move on to speak about the Lord's choice of Abraham. Look at verses 7 and 8. They claim that the Lord chose Abraham, brought him out of her of the Chaldeans, and even changed his name to Abraham, meaning father of a great nation. They go on and say that he found Abraham to be faithful, made a covenant, a binding promise with him, where he promised to give his offspring the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And they conclude by saying that the Lord has kept that promise to Abraham. Why? Because he is righteous, because he's the God who does what is right. The Levites move on to speak about the Lord's deliverance from Egypt. Look at verses 9 to 15. He saw the affliction of their fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Isn't that an amazing thing? That the Lord would see his people in trouble? That the Lord would hear his people when they were in trouble? And they say that he performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against his servants, against all the people of the land, making a name for himself. He divided the sea so that his people were able to pass through on dry ground. And after that, he hurled the Egyptians, hurled their pursuers into the depths of the sea like a storm. He led them by a pillar of cloud by day, then by a pillar of fire by night. Gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, commands, Sabbaths at Mount Sinai. And they conclude by saying that he gave them bread from heaven, water from the rock, and told them to possess the land that he had given to them. The Levites move on, though, to speak about the Lord's preservation in the wilderness. Look at verses 16 to 21. Despite all that the Lord had done, the people rebelled. They acted presumptuously. They stiffened their necks. They refused to obey. They failed to remember all the wonders that the Lord had done for them. And they appointed a leader to lead them back into slavery in Egypt. Isn't that quite something? But that wasn't enough for them. Because they went on to make a golden calf. And after making the golden calf, they claimed, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. This is the God who delivered us. This is the God who has sustained us up until now. 
and they committed blasphemies as they did so. And in the midst of all that rebellion, the Lord preserved them. He's a God, the people say, who is ready to forgive. A God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He didn't forsake them. He's the God who continued to lead them by the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. The God who gave them his spirit, his own spirit, to instruct them. He's the God who didn't withhold food or drink from them, continued to give them water, continued to give them manna for their mouths. He's the God who sustained them and ensured that their clothes didn't wear out, ensured that their feet didn't swell, ensured that they lacked nothing. It's the same confession that we have in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that was the experience of the people in the wilderness. The Lord was their shepherd and he ensured that they lacked nothing. The Levites move on though to describe the Lord's provision of the land. Look at verses 22 to 25. The Levites speak about the peoples taking possession of the land. The Lord gave them kingdoms and gave them rulers. The Lord allowed them to take possession of the land of Sihon and all these powerful Amorite kings on the eastern side of the Jordan. The Lord multiplied their offspring, brought them into the land that he had promised to their fathers, that land that he had promised Abram all those centuries before. The Lord enabled them to subdue the inhabitants of the land and gave the kings into their hand. And as such, the people were able to capture fortified cities, were able to take houses filled with good things, were able to take cisterns that they they hadn't dug, were able to take vineyards, olive orchards, and an abundance of fruit trees. It was all ready for them. It was all prepared for them. It was all provided for them. And the Levites speak about the peoples going on to prosper in that land. They ate and were filled. They, They grew fat from the great goodness of the Lord. He is not a stinting giver. He is an unstinting blesser and benefactor. And then finally, the Levites speak about the Lord's ongoing faithfulness to his people in verses 26 to 31. Despite the Lord's magnanimous provision of the land and in the land, the people once again rebelled. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. They, to you, look at the words the Levites used. They cast the Lord's law behind their back. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they killed his prophets. They committed blasphemies. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of their enemies until they cried out to him. And after hearing their cries, the Lord sent them saviors, sent them deliverers, sent them rescuers to bring them out of their situation of misery. But having been delivered, look what the people do. They again turn away from the Lord. He would once again hand them over to their enemies. They would once again cry out to him. And he would once again appoint saviors, deliverers, rescuers for them. There is this ongoing cycle, this ongoing circle of sin and salvation. Sin and salvation. It's really a picture that we see in the book of Judges. And then a further summary of that period is provided by the Levites. The Lord would warn his people to turn back to his law. But they would refuse to obey his commands and would sin against his life-giving laws. His, His laws, his word was designed to give them life, but they would sin against that due, the Levites say, to their stubborn shoulders and their stiff necks. 
Over the years, the Lord had been patient with them. He would warn them by his spirit, speaking through his spirit-inspired prophets. But again, the people repeatedly refuse to listen. And so the Lord has left with no option but to give them into the hand of their enemies. And the Levites conclude by confessing that because of the Lord's great mercy, he hadn't made a complete end of them. He hadn't forsaken his people utterly. He is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. He was a gracious and merciful God in the past, but he's also that same gracious and merciful God in the present. And you know, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being shown the importance of confessing who our God is. The importance of confessing who our God is. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. The Levites and the people recognize that he is the God of creation. The God who made all things. They recognize that he's the God of election. The God who chose Abraham. They recognize that he's the God of redemption. The God who saved his people Israel by destroying their enemies Egypt. They recognize that he's the God who guides. The God who gave a pillar of cloud by day. Pillar of fire by night. As well as his laws, his statutes, his commands at Mount Sinai to guide them. They recognize that he's the God who provides. The God who ensured that his people were never lacking in the wilderness. The God who ensured that his people were brought into a prosperous land. And that they themselves prospered in that land. That they grew fat in the land because of his great goodness. And they recognize that he's the God who is merciful. The God of great mercies. Did you see that word repeated in verse 19, verse 27, verse 31? The God of great mercies. The God who forgives. The God who doesn't forsake his rebellious and wayward people. And friends, this is so important for us to remember. As we have said so often throughout this series, the aim of this sermon series is to encourage us as we attempt to regroup as we attempt to rebuild, as we attempt to reach out to our community with the gospel after two years of lockdown and restrictions. Again, picking on poor Robert, if we go away from this series thinking to ourselves, well, that was all very interesting, or maybe thinking to ourselves, well, that was a load of mumbo-jumbo from Ferrier. I wonder what the next series will be. It's no use. The aim of this series, friends, is so that we would regroup, rebuild, reach out to our community with the gospel, that we would do something. And the greatest encouragement that we could receive as we go about this task is by remembering, acknowledging who our God is. Not who we are, but who he is. He's the God of creation, the God of election, the God of redemption. He's the God who guides and the God who provides. He is the God who is merciful, the God who offers the most broken sinner, the most bruised backslider, grace upon grace. Great mercies, a full and free forgiveness that was secured at Calvary's cross. A full and free forgiveness that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And so this evening, I want us to ask ourselves the question, do we see and appreciate the importance of confessing, acknowledging who our God is? Do we see, do we appreciate the importance of confessing, acknowledging 
who our God is. If we have little views of God, if we have diminished views of God, if we have tiny, insignificant views of God, we will attempt small, trivial things for him, perhaps, or maybe nothing for him. But if we have a big view of who he is, if we have a biblical view of who he is, then we might start doing something. Do we confess who he is? Do we acknowledge who he is? I say that to myself. I say that to you elders. I say that to you deacons. I say that to each and every one of you. Do we acknowledge who our God is? Third and finally, we come to the complaint. Look at verses 32 to 37. And now Nehemiah focuses on the complaint of the Levites and the people. The Levites and the people now come with a cry to the Lord, whom they have just been confessing in verses 32 and 35. They now acknowledge who their God is. Look at verse 32. He is their God. He is the God who is great, the God who is mighty, the God who is awesome. He is the God who keeps his covenant, the God who maintains his steadfast love. And having acknowledged who their God is, the people come with an appeal to him. Look at verse 32. Since the time of the kings of Assyria, that's 200 years previously, until the present day, they and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets and their fathers and all the people have been experiencing hardship. Hardship for 200 years. And they ask the Lord not to view their hardship as a small thing. Not to view it as a light thing. Not to dismiss it as an insignificant thing. And after appealing to the Lord, they reaffirm the Lord's righteousness and their rebellion. Look at verses 33 to 35. The Lord had been righteous in all his dealings with them. The Lord had been faithful in all that had happened to them. He can't be charged with any wrongdoing. Instead, it's their kings, their princes, their priests, their fathers who haven't kept his laws, haven't paid attention to his commandments and warnings, despite all the Lord's great goodness to them in this large land, this rich land, they say, they have refused to serve him. They have refused to turn from their wicked ways. And the Levites and the people close by bringing their complaint about their present condition to the Lord in verses 36 and 37. They now see themselves as slaves. Once upon a time, they were slaves in Egypt. But now they see themselves as being slaves in the very land that the Lord had promised to give to their fathers. And they see themselves as slaves because look at verse 37. All the rich yield of the land is now going to these kings whom the Lord has set over them. They see themselves as king, as slaves because these kings are ruling over their bodies and ruling over their livestock as they please. And because of this, because they see themselves as slaves who are being abused by other kings, they conclude by saying, we are in great distress. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being shown the importance of bringing our complaints to the Lord. The importance of bringing our complaints to the Lord. That's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. The people have returned to their land. They have rebuilt their temple. They have rebuilt the walls of their city. 
but they're experiencing hardship. They're in great distress. It's not like the golden days of David, the golden days of Solomon. They're in a bit of a mess. There is almost, it would seem, an absence of the Lord's blessing. And they bring their complaint about their condition to the Lord. They don't hold back. And friends, that is so important for us to remember this evening. I know I encourage the younger ones to read C.S. Lewis and his Chronicles of Narnia. I just think they, they are phenomenal books. And I even last year when I was on holiday in Caithness, I took the Chronicles of Narnia with me and read them for the, the week or so. And in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, the lion Aslan speaks to this young boy Shasta. And Shasta is saying that he feels like the unluckiest boy in the whole world. And Aslan says to him, tell me your sorrows. Tell me your sorrows. And that is what the God of the Bible says to all his people. Tell me your sorrows. Go on, tell me your sorrows. He invites his people to bring their complaints, their sorrows and their setbacks, their fears and their frustrations, their doubts, their disappointments, their distresses to him. That's one of the reasons why he's given us the Psalms of Lament to assure us that he's the God who invites us to bring our troubles, however trivial they might seem or however traumatic they might seem, to bring our troubles to him. We don't need to hold back from him. We don't need to try and maintain a stiff upper lip with him. We don't need to say everything's fine with him. I text people and I say, how are you getting on? And they say, I'm fine. I visit people and I say, how are you getting on? And they say, I'm fine. And you know what, friends, when people ask me how I'm doing and I say I'm fine, the reality is I am far from fine. And not so often the case when people are speaking to me and they're saying, I'm fine. And I'm saying to myself, you are not fine. But we don't need to say I'm fine when it comes to the Lord. Look, and Duncan makes this point. Bringing our complaints to the Lord is an expression of faith because it shows a belief that he can do something about our situation. I'll say that again. Bringing our complaints to the Lord is an expression of faith. Because it shows a belief that he can do something about our situation. And so this evening, let's just ask ourselves as individuals and also as a congregation, do we see and appreciate the importance of bringing our complaints, the things that are trying us and tormenting us, the the things that are leaving us downcast and disheartened? Do we see and appreciate the importance of bringing our complaints to the Lord. Lord, something is not right. Something is wrong. Something is wrong in my life. Something is wrong in our congregation. Something is wrong in our community. Lord, you alone can do something about it. Is our faith real enough 
to bring our complaints to the Lord. There is a wonderful reason for gathering for prayer on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We gather to praise the Lord. We gather to confess our sin. But you know, can I say this to you, brothers who will be praying? We also come to bring our complaints, to say, Lord, there are problems and you need to deal with them. Let's pray.